So if you want to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 6, we'll get there momentarily. Of course, we're doing a study in the book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. And if you are like me, uh, maybe you didn't get the book till maybe just a couple weeks ago, maybe a week ago. And so it might be helpful to get some continuity into what we've been talking about and discussing. So I thought maybe I'd begin this morning with just a quick recap, literally uh, a five-minute tour of the book if you, to this point, just so you're aware of like the main overarching themes and thoughts, and, and because it's going to make a cumulative impact as you move through the book um, and helping you to understand what is implied by the term instruments in the Redeemer's hands. Um, so we begin, first of all, with the chapter that he talked about being the best of news. That was the first time we got gathered together. We talked about the opportunities that we have as a church. How God has designed his church is that he's assembling together a group of believers uh, who are called by his name and who are commissioned, who are given a mandate to minister as the body of Christ. That's a tremendous privilege. It's, when, he, when he designates us as his body, that's a significant privilege and responsibility, isn't it? And so the entire chapter is all about um, kind of beginning with a bit of a criticism about the, the, uh, the consumerism that just prevails in our church. The, the idea that uh, we all kind of assemble and we sit passively and we're just there to kind of support whatever the professional ministers are doing on the stage. And we kind of have this spectator, spectator approach to Christianity, which is, which is problematic and it's not the biblical design behind why the church is, is meant to be. We're, 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 well, we're encouraged, not just encouraged, we are gifted and called and commissioned to all engage as members of this body, working together to edify itself in every part, the, the scripture says, strengthening one another. So you have a critical and important role to play in the, life, the body life of the church. And so it's not just come keep your seat and, uh, you know, take attendance kind of uh, church uh, life. It is a get involved, connect deeply, uh, make relationships, realize that uh, you are playing a vital role in the, in the idea of what the church is supposed to be. Uh, there is a problem with this passive body that pays professionals to do ministry mentality. And by that statement, I don't mean that it's wrong for us to pay, pay pastors who do this for a living. That's not at all wrong or unbiblical. That's 1 Timothy 5 says that that's appropriate. However, it is wrong when we kind of then therefore delegate all of the responsibility over to the pastors and to the ministers that uh, are on staff to do the work. Uh, that's obviously, if you've been around church long, and I'm sure many of you have as I look around here, you'll see that there's more ministry to be done than there are people to do it. So um, this is why we enlist in the, the uh, participation of every body part, every, every, every member of the body. We are called to minister to the body, and that is where the idea of being an instrument comes into play, the instruments of God to bring hope and change in the lives of someone else. In the early parts of the book, I remember um, him talking about a phone call he received one time as a pastor. He was saying that uh, he received the, the call from, I don't remember the man's name, but the man was very burdened for his neighbor, I believe it was. His neighbor was going through a difficult time, had serious difficulties and challenges. And his first inclination was to call his pastor so that he could introduce his neighbor to the pastor to be able to work out through the problems of counseling and issues that were related there. And what struck me in that, that in anecdote in the book was that he was very insistent that, that, that that's not what God's intention was, that God never gets a wrong address, he says. 
that God has put you in close proximity to that one so that you have a responsibility now before the Lord to minister God, to, uh, connect that one with uh, directly with the, with the power of the Word of God, and so that uh, Paul was talk, Paul Tripp was talking to this man. He helped this man work through helping his neighbor through the spiritual struggles he was in, encountering. And you know what happened as a result of that? Not only was the neighbor benefited and helped, but guess who else got helped? The the, the man who had made the initial call to the pastor. He's the one. He's, he's he got benefited by the fact he was learning to exercise and to grow in the grace of helping others. And taking up his role in the body of life in the body of Christ, so that's how God works. God uses weak people, uh, p- needy people like you and I, to help needy people. That's the design. The design is that not that people have it all together, not that you and I purport ourselves to be the uh, model Christians, and then therefore once we've been totally perfected in every way whatsoever, then we can therefore help someone else. That's not the intention. The idea is that we stand in need ourselves. We struggle in our own sin, in our struggle with the, the continuing uh, remaining effects of sin in our life. Yet God uses us in that weak state to help others who are also struggling. And that we shouldn't put the pa- hit the pause button and wait till we're completely perfected. And, because, that, you know, obviously that will only happen in glory. So that would be uh, premature to do that. So the point is, uh, we are not just simply conduits passively connecting people to our pastors counselors, church, or whatever. We are people in need of change, helping people in need of change. So the idea behind this is that we have counseling ministry here, we have pastors here who are willing and able to help, but really the, the main goal is to equip you to be the counselors, to be the um, boots-on-the-ground ministers of the church, as it were, to serve the body and to serve the community around you. You have a unique influence that I'll never have, that pastors will never have. You have a circle of people you engage with, you encounter every day that are beyond the scope of what our limited staff can reach. And this is where you are uniquely positioned by God to be uh, relating to these folks around you. So I hope you understand that's a ministry. That's a tremendous ministry. So number chapter number two is in the hands of the Redeemer. This is where he begins to talk about many tools in the toolbox. In Ephesians chapter four, verse 11, he talks about uh, Paul was listing there the design of God, that there are many gifts given to the church as a result of the ascension of Christ. And he says he's given many pastors and teachers, prophets, and, and uh, um, for the equipping of the saints, for the edifying of the body, and for um, the, the work of the ministry. And he talks about how God's purpose was to equip his church with many tools, i.e. many believers with gifts, who are specially suited to perform the work of the ministry, just like a tool is specifically suited for the task, uh, that you are a tool in the toolbox, as it were. And uh, I, I love the beautiful imagery there that he takes from Ephesians chapter 4, and that God changes lives exclusively through direct ministry of the word, that you're not going to change people's lives by being just a friendly face or living out a, a hope-filled model of Christianity before them. You can't... Can, you can't change people's lives just by being a good example. You must, change, you must engage them with the power of the scriptures itself that take root and they actually transform from within, which is going to segue to our topic in just a moment. One of the most insightful things I found in this chapter was this discussion about scripture being not a topically arranged self-help book. And i got to tell you this. 
this is how I tend to think. I tended to think of my Bible this way for so many years that I would just kind of catalog in my mind different issues that I would encounter and face, such as anger or um, bitterness or anxiety. Or if I met somebody who had one of these outstanding issues, I would go through my mind like a scripture concordance and just snapshot these verses and kind of lift them out of the out of the book and apply them like like just indiscriminately just taking verses and just slapping them at people and and kind of giving giving people a topical approach to scripture and, and not realizing that that's not the way scripture was designed to be it's not just meant to be like a an encyclopedia of solutions to your problems like if you have a problem with uh, your marriage here take two doses of Ephesians chapter 5 and you'll be great in the morning you know that's not how it works um, the scriptures a whole con- it has a, it, it, it's a whole unity there's a continuity to the scriptures and the idea behind this is that scripture itself is designed and presented in such a way that you may need more than just direction on how to fix the communication problems in your marriage you may need to be working on other passages that are, have nothing to do with your marriage you might instead be dealing with your, your idolatry of yourself Maybe yourself is too big of an, uh, an idol in your life, or, or perhaps you have other issues where you're not um, um, crucifying the flesh, and, and, and you're driven by passions and desires and, and wants and, and lusts, and those things are competing with uh, the needs that you have with your wife. I mean, there are other things that are, are at play there besides just what, how we would uh, superficially diagnose things. So scripture is meant to not be taken as a kind of like a an encyclopedia where you just kind of look at one article at a time and look at it in isolation. But scripture is designed to be for the body to enter into the church, enter into the, uh, into the word and systematically be worked through the scriptures so that God is able to use just about any passage of scripture to work on your heart, whether it's related to your issue or not. Scripture has an effect in changing your life, whether he's preaching from Ecclesiastes or he's preaching from Ephesians chapter 5. If you happen to have a marriage need there, you will get benefit from both, from both places. In fact, it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. It takes a whole Bible to make a whole marriage, to, to heal and to, uh, to, to, to bring a soundness in the, in the marriage there. So that was a pretty, uh, I think that was a rather interesting insight i've been meditating on that for a while and i continue to find that to be very fruitful to think of it that way your scripture is not meant to be doled out piecemeal little bits and pieces as if you're just giving little tidbits of wisdom like you're just kind of sprinkling magical phrases over problems okay your scriptures have a true and internalized power that happens to take effect when someone sits under its power and influence over extended periods of time this is why you need to be in the church regularly and under the preaching of the word of God regularly for its sanctifying power in your life. So, chapter 3, do we really need help? Well, um, this seems like a no-brainer question. Uh, I don't know about you, but I need help. Um, my wife would agree. I was expecting a huge amen from her on the front row when I said that. Good, good job. Amen. Uh, do I need help? Yes, absolutely. In fact, we need to begin to practice what he calls a biblical realization of biblical anthropology. What's that mean? We need, we need, means that we need to start living in consistent application of what the Bible tells us who we really are. Who are we as people? And we have developed a certain identity and a certain conviction about who we are as a person that is distorted and it's not accurate to what Scripture's portrait of us really is. 
we think ourselves to be generally good people, generally motivated by good goodness in our hearts. We're altruistic. We think we think of ourselves to be uh, rather decent human beings. Whereas the Bible actually paints a very different portrait of us. Um, in fact, um, this this is important that we would live in consistent honesty and real, reality of who we really are. He mentions three specific things here. Um, he talks about our creation to be um, revelation receivers. This is what Jeff was getting to last week when he was talking about our need for God. That we were created and to, to begin at the beginning with Adam and Eve. Uh, to be ones who walked in communion with him on a daily basis. Remember those, you see those little vignettes throughout Genesis where God's walking and communing with his people, with Adam and Eve, in the, and uh, that there's a, there's a fellowship that's coming there, and God is giving them direction and teaching and, and instructions. And uh, there is that, that is something that exists before we fell into sin. Therefore, how much more now, after the fall, do we need to be revelation receivers? We need to be dependent on receiving the truths of God's word. And uh, when you cut yourself off from the word of God and you ignore it and you set it to the side, uh, you are you're perhaps engaging one of the most uh, self-audacious uh, uh, acts to be able to say, I don't need the revelation of God. I'll just say that. You don't, that's a tragic position to be in. He also mentioned that we, by our creation, we are also interpreters. We're natural interpreters. We take, we want to see meaning behind everything that happens to us or everything that is occurring. We look at situations and we begin immediately ascribing to that significance and meaning behind why that's happening. Well, why is it that I've got, you know, my, my, well, can I use your sister-in-law, for instance? Your sister-in-law has contracted cancer. And immediately we're starting to think through this situation about how, why that might be the case. Why would God allow such things to happen? And we begin to go through the machinations of explaining. We're explainers. This is part of our inborn nature. Do you realize, though, the scriptures often tell us that we need to be careful about giving over to that tendency to always try to ascribe meaning for something we cannot know the meaning for? Scripture tells us all the time. It tells us uh, in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 6, that we lean not unto our own understanding. Because our understanding has limitations. We, we don't know all the secret purposes of God behind why he does what he does. Instead, we trust the nature and character of God that he is doing what is good, despite how it feels or how, it, how we are experiencing it. So he talks about us and our need to be careful how we interpret things. In fact, many times when we're talking about counseling, people, people have an idea about what, why things are the way they are. The husband comes in, he wants to blame his wife for the problems in their marriage. The wife wants to blame the husband, so on and so forth. He is making an interpretation in that situation, is not. So what's going on there is that uh, scriptures are ringing true. There is a way that seems right to a man. That verse is said over and over again and repeated. We have, uh, we have the idea that we have the correct interpretation on something, where instead uh, we need to check that interpretation against the bar, the standard of scripture, whether that is a true interpretation or not. And then thirdly, he says we're worshipers. Uh, we are born, we are made for God. I think uh, it was Augustine who said that we were made for God and our hearts are always restless until we find rest in him. That's, that's where we are. We are. If you do not worship God, you will worship something. Um, 
And in fact, more often than not, even if you do profess to worship God, you'll find your heart drifting into places where you worship things other than God and create idols. Idolatry is not, a, is not an ancient problem. It is a very much modern problem. In fact, I, I'd say it's even more insidious in our generation because it doesn't, it doesn't have to be represented by any material statue or figure of any kind. It, it can just be an idea. It can be an ambition. It can be a desire. It can be something that rules and reigns in your heart. And nonetheless, is an idol. So he mentions here our fall and sin causes us to reinterpret the facts of our life situations and perceptions. So because we are living post-fall, you and I deal with a sin problem that has an effect upon our mind, our ability to reason sometimes, and our ability to see things in the, re- in the reality of what they are. We interpret things according to how we want to see them, perhaps, in many cases. In fact, he mentions that's what Satan does in Genesis chapter 3. He asks, did God say? Did God really say? And begin to take the facts of Eve's situation and begin to reinterpret that so that for her, uh, she began to think that God had some wrong purpose, perhaps, in why he was withholding from them the good things of the, good, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and so on and so forth. She, we, we tend to reinterpret the facts of our life situations and perceptions, and we begin to believe ourselves to be autonomous and self-sufficient. You see, this is the great lie of Satan, <laughs> the great lie that we tell ourselves every day. Whether we want to profess it with our mouth, we live this way. We live as though we are the end of everything. That we we have our own resources. We are adequate within ourselves to handle what we have, the problems of our life before us, the situations, the challenges that face us. We believe ourselves to be completely sufficient for such things. And we're not. Not at all. So, this brings on the third part of our anthropology. Not only creation, our fall, but also our redemption. That Christ's power over sin is given to us in our redemption so that we too, even though sin's power has been broken, we can begin to uh, overcome and conquer sin and its reigning power in our life. This is what Romans 6 is all about. It's talking about uh, subduing the power of sin that continues to try to exert its dominance in your life. You ever had problems with... You ever had a sin that just continues to enslave and continues to feel like it just dominates in your life? Though No matter how many times you seem to repent and you seem to try to forsake it, it seems to, once again, just seems to take power and control in your life. That's because, not because we're empowerless or not because we have no ability to overcome. It's because we willingly allow it to do so. We don't practice the truths of Romans chapter 6 where we um, access the power of God that's available to us in sanctification and overcome through the application of Scripture and the application of um, the strength that he provides through, through the Scriptures. So we have this idea of redemption um, as the major, one of the major aspects of our anthropology. So there's, there's three chapters. We've kind of climbed through some important ground to get to chapter 4, where we talk about the heart. So given that man is a fallen creature, man has, um, man has uh, not retained his innocence, he's not autonomous, he is not self-sufficient, with these things to be the case, um, now we enter the question of why do people do the things they do? Why do you think people do the things they do? 
what what is what is going on? Ever wonder that? I wonder that when I drive down Timberlake Road. What are people doing? <laughs> I begin to ask myself the questions of that are really significant in life. Why do people do what they do? And I, I find this much easier to practice this this keen discernment that I have on other people. Not so well on my own self. But I, I can seem to figure out what people are thinking, but I can't always uh, can't always diagnose my own problems of thinking. But what is it that's at what's going on in people's hearts? That's really the question. Your heart is the control center of your life. It is the very center of your life. Now, the heart is used in Scripture many times, and oftentimes it's it's related to some other faculty you might think of. You might think of your brain as the center of your thinking. But did you know the Bible says that your heart is the center of your thinking? For as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Okay, so you understand, we, we think of the heart way differently in our day than the, than the first century and even the, the Old Testament saints would have thought of their heart. The, the heart is the seat of the, the mind. It's the conscience. It's, it's, the, it's the place where desires are conceived. Um, it's the place of your intellect, emotions, and will are all located in the heart. And I'm not talking about that three, I think it's three pound blood pumping muscle in the middle of your chest, okay? It's talking about the inner person, the real essence of who you are, okay? Um, so this is how the Bible is conceiving of the heart. It is the real inner person, that, that essence of who you are, that is driving all of this behavior. The external things that you see and do and say is all being sourced from an inner being, an inner person who you really are. Um, this is what the Bible describes as your heart. So if you were to look at what the Bible says about your heart, um, you would see Jeremiah seventeen nine eventually along the way in your studies, which would say what? I'm sure you know this verse. The heart is deceitfully wicked, right? Uh, uh, deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can know it? Okay, so scripture's t- keying us in on the fact that from your very essence, from within, you are corrupted and have an have a tremendous inability and challenge to be able to of your own heart, trust your own heart, believe in yourself, trust in you know, all the mantras we hear today bandied about in the culture. Um, trust yourself, you know, believe in yourself. All of this is sourced from a bad idea of what the heart really is. So uh, the heart, why do people do what the things they do? It's because the heart is bent to do what it is doing. Um, Jesus uses four word pictures in this chapter. He covers each one. And I believe they're, they're just so beautiful. These four word <laughs> pictures to describe how the heart works first one he talks about roots and fruits in Luke chapter 6. And the second one he talks about um, externalism and how uh, uh, we'll talk about how the Pharisees in that day were more keyed, keyed in on the behavioral and outside practices of religion and missing, dealing with the, in, the inner essence of what our faith is really all about. Ezekiel talks about the idols that we place, the secret worship activity that goes on in our heart beyond the external. And he talks about, Jesus talks about Matthew chapter 6, the heart's treasure. And these four word pictures, I think, are 
extremely instructive and insightful in helping us understand how your heart reasons itself to do the things that you do. Your behavior and your actions all precipitate out of a heart that is um, for either good or bad, as you'll see in Matthew chapter or Luke chapter six. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. And then there's this kind of like this capstone statement right here. For out of the abundance of the heart that his mouth speaks. Now this, this abundance here kind of corresponds to the idea of treasure here and here. So... What is going? What, what is he saying here? Well, several things. Number one, every tree is identified and recognized by the fruit it produces. You would never expect an, or, an apple tree to produce oranges, right? Uh, that is endemic to its nature, that it will produce that for which it is created to do, and that which is designed. And uh, what it, it, there's an organic relationship between fruit and root, okay? Uh, those things don't, uh, don't, um, are, yeah, they don't change at all. So, and he also mentions here that the mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. What comes out of your mouth will reveal to you exactly what your heart, what your heart is saying. You never have to be left in the dark about what, what does my heart say, or what, what, what do I really believe deep in my heart? Because you know what, your words will tell on you. They will tell on you. It's inevitable. What you say inevitably exposes what's going on in your heart. Uh, Paul says in his book, he says that your words are your heart overflowing. Um, that really gives you a different take on how, 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 how what you say really needs to be examined carefully. Do you ever listen to yourself and say, man, I, I, who is that talking? I mean, you kind of you ever surprise yourself with the things that come out of your mouth? Um, your words are revealing um, more than you know, perhaps. Your behavior, therefore, betrays your beliefs. What you really believe is being displayed. It's on display for everyone. You might consider it to be well-contained. You may consider yourself to be well-reserved and able to control yourself as a self-controlled, moderate person. Yet behavior will inevitably be a manifestation of what your inner beliefs really are. If you believe yourself to be a good person and you try to behave good, eventually your behavior will give up information. Otherwise, <laughs> it just does. Your conduct will clarify your creed. So what my pastor used to say, what's in the well comes up in the bucket. Uh, that's the way it works. So uh, this is a really fascinating teaching about roots and fruits when we look at what Jesus is saying here, he's not saying that others, therefore, are, are, are making us do things. We are not allowed to attribute to others the consequences of our own actions. In other words, others can't make you be angry. Others can't make you get upset. Uh, this, it's not a problem of your environment or your situation or your partner, your wife, husband, or whatever. It's not a function of external problems. The, lo the location of your problem resides deep within your own heart. Okay, so 
This causes us to evaluate and take responsibility for the things that we say and do and not to ascribe the problem to others. Remember, that's what Adam did. <laughs> the wife you gave me, Lord. Uh, he was blaming Eve, and he was also blaming God, was he not, when he said that? Um, so a, a, a kind of a corollary thought along with this is that if the heart doesn't change, then behavior changes might be successful for a short period of time, but ultimately behavior will not stick if the heart does not change. If you have kids at home, have you noticed this? Maybe you don't have to look at your kids, you can look at your own life. But if, you, if you're unsuccessful in having your heart, having the child's heart change, the behavior pattern continues, doesn't it? Um, there has to be a way to get to the heart of a child or get to your own heart and see the changes that, that take place are first created in the heart. This was the problem the Pharisees had, and Jesus had no problem exposing them for this. And I feel I kind of like I get I feel the ouch from this passage too. Matthew 23, verse 25 through 26, we talk about the externalism of the Pharisees. Jesus says, "Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence." Now, you would think they'd be able to see this. This would be readily evident to them. It was evident to others. Others could see this hypocrisy in the Pharisees. This is why when Jesus says this, there's a hearing for this, and people are going, uh-huh, we see this in Pharisees. But they're blind. Your sin blinds your ability to see to see itself. That's the, that's the great subtle de- uh, deception of sin, is that it seems to not be there. It is, it's invisible often to us. Um, you blind Pharisee, first, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. So there's a um, the implication here that there has to be first a dealing with the inner part of the of the heart, right? It's not a matter of going through the outward behaviors of churchianity, going through the grabbing your Bible, walking out the door, making a good appearance at church. It's about dealing with the inner issues that are resident in the heart the temptation is always to change the externals though in fact i'll I'll, we'll go on to say that it's probably easier to change the circumstances and the externals of your life than it is to change your heart several so many times this is so clear that uh rather than changing what needs to be changed in the heart people would rather change the situation if their if their marriage is on the rocks and they're having difficulty with their wife or spouse or whatever husband um, they'd rather change spouses rather than change their heart they feel that that would be the easier route to take they'd rather change relationships if they don't like this particular church or they have an issue with something going on with another person in the church they'd rather just abandon the church abandon the relationships that they've created and rather than change their heart and and this is tragic this is this is exactly why we need to focus on the heart as the target Temptation is that we often want to change other people's behavior. In reality, there's no hope in that. You'll never change someone else. Only God can do that, right? Only God has the power to reach into a man's heart and convert him and change him and transform him. You don't. But the hope is that if your own heart is the issue, then you have hope for change because according to Romans chapter 6, you have the power to change your heart and your attitude and your understanding, and your will. 
as as a born again uh, Holy Spirit indwelt believer, you can transform your heart and bring it into subjection to the Word of God. So don't settle for apparent change. It must be internalized change. Lasting change will only occur at the heart level. I'm going to have to, I'm realizing I'm way out, out of time here, so I'm going to have to hold you right here. But actually, um, this idea of idolatry in the heart from Ezekiel chapter 14 is, is extremely, extremely um, convicting. But I, I will leave that till after you ladies come back from, from the conference. And you probably will hear this this week. I guarantee you will. Um, so um, it will be interesting to hear your interactions next week. I'll be here with you again next week. Uh, we'll, we'll pick up right here. And let's ask the Lord to um, help us be more sensitive to what's going on in our hearts, which may be indicated, which not maybe, will be indicated by, first of all, our outward behaviors. And the words that are coming out of our mouth are revealing, more spiritually revealing to us than perhaps anything else. Uh, so being cautious of this, let's ask the Lord to help us in a matter of taking uh, into, into consideration the heart as our target for change. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to be in the word this morning. I pray that you would once again um, help us to apply these things which we've heard. It's everything said here this, this morning with the convictional understanding and uh, underpinning of the fact that it must be by your grace and by your strength that we can change. Lord, I pray that uh, for those of us who struggle with things that we say, uh, we think, thought we say thoughtlessly, we act inconsistently with what we know to be true in the word. I pray that our hearts would be gripped by that, convicted, that, Lord, we would be able to see that uh, we are in need of a heart change, which comes through repentance and confession of sin, agreeing with you that it is what it is that you called it. It is sin. And that, Lord, we find that you are quick and ready to forgive, but you're not just forgiving, but you're also able to empower for the turning and the changing of a life, changing of our behavior, changing of our, of our thought patterns. You transform us in that, through that process of sanctification. Lord, I pray that we would be yielded to that this week. We'll ask, this for, uh, we'll ask for this all in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.